that you could be here with us this morning. We would love it if you would stand and worship with us.
Well, welcome everyone to Hope Vale. We're so glad that you could join us this morning. Why don't you take a look around and see who's around you and say hello. You can go ahead and have a seat. Great to have you here uh, this day, this Lord's Day on Sunday where we worship together, uh, where we as uh, Michiganders get to look eastward and just laugh a lot. (laughs) My son moved to Washington, D.C. six months ago, two plus feet of snow. They are freaking out over there. Yeah, it's, it's good, but, you know, we're not going to, like, take pride in that or anything, so. Hey, um, hard to believe it's almost the end of January, but we got a couple great things coming up next weekend I want to tell you about. First, this upcoming Saturday, 6 p.m., right here in our North Campus Worship Auditorium, we're going to have a worship night led by our worship team, and really what it is is taking the Sunday morning Uh, worship through music experience and just extending that for an hour or so and just giving us space to sing praises to God and to engage in worship on just a much freer, deeper level, maybe as things feel tight on Sunday, just to be able to do that. We do these, you know, once a month or so and would love for just a great way to kind of kick off the new year by worshiping together. So that's this Saturday, 6 o'clock. Then next Sunday, is our Get to Know Hope Bell class. And we offer this for people who are ready to find out more about the church. You know, we talk about who we are as a church, what we believe, and how you can fit into the life of our church. So you can sign up at our Welcome Center. Uh, and we also have a lunch included with that as well. We just didn't need to know that you're coming. Get to Know Hope Bell next Sunday. As we continue in worship, I'm going to ask that the ushers come forward as we take up the offering. And really, uh, we say this a lot, but we view this and really everything we do in this service as an act of worship. And so engage just as you have been in singing as we give to the Lord. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lift it up. Jesus, you defeated the grave. And that's why we can sing this day with joy and with confidence That even, and I know some are, in the midst of deep, dark trials, there is light, there is hope, because there is victory in Jesus Christ. So thank you that coming into this place helps us get our hearts and our minds aright for all that we have and all that we are in Jesus. And so thank you for that. God, our hearts do go out to just those hurting in our congregation and just really pray you would minister your grace, your peace to them. Our hearts extend uh, just miles down the road in Flint. We pray for the people there and just all that is being worked through. And while there's a lot of infighting, a lot of finger pointing, we pray for solutions. We pray for just merciful ministry. Uh, Engage your church, engage governmental agencies. But Lord, we pray for your hand in that situation. And God, just our hearts, our lives, that we would go through our days, open eyes, open hands, open hearts, just to be used by you. Because that's what we want to do. As those who have been given so much, God, we just want to be spigots of your grace. Lord, as we give now, we just want to do this um, as an act of worship. God, we love you so much, and thank you that we can express that together here in this place, in the name of Jesus. Amen.
just worship you this morning. We thank you for everything you do for us. We all come in here this morning with things that are burdening us, and we just lay it all before you. We know just not even for a moment will you leave us alone, will you forsake us. We love you so much. We praise your name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Uh, if God is really in charge, I don't believe in coincidences then. And um, I, I think of that song we just sang, and in some sense, it's for everyone here, but in another sense, for some of you, it was really for you. And there's a line in that song, um, you were there in the dark, whispering your promises, even when I could not hear. And there are moments when we come to church where we sense something. It's not an audible voice. We feel like God is trying to get our attention, right? And sometimes it's in our darkest moments when that happens. And, you know, if you've had that experience or you're having that experience right now, pay attention. Because God is there in the dark. He's whispering his promises, even if you can't hear, you're unable to hear, or you're trying to hear. And God wants to speak his grace, his hope, his love, his life into your heart. And so I trust that we, all of us, and especially those who just need an encouraging word from God today, that you're hearing that. So I wanted to share that. We've been going through this Money 101 series, and you know, the last couple weeks we've been Talking about saving and spending. So it got me thinking about Christmas, right? We just came through that season and all the gift buying and giving we went through. So I want to ask a couple questions because I'm really curious about our church, right? Uh, How many of you did any of your Christmas shopping online? All right, you can kind of look around. Would you agree, like, over probably over half of you, right? Um, How many of you did most of your Christmas shopping online? Wow, still quite a... I think I fell in that category too. Okay, here's the next one. Is there any one of you who actually did all of your Christmas shopping? Uh, Look at this. You guys are my heroes, all right? I'm just going to tell you right now. So if you online shoppers, one more question. How many of you used Amazon, right? Yeah, look at that. I mean, my goodness. You know, I did. I love Amazon. I mean, I, I really do. More time clicking, less time in a crowded store where stuff has been pawed over and they're not even going to have your size anyways. Hmm, let me see that or they bring it right to your door. Tough choice, right? Now, Amazon, yeah, every time. Now, I have to admit, if you're not careful, you can get a little click happy on Amazon and maybe buy some stuff you don't really need. So I guess you've got to watch out for that, right? Well, you know, if the ease of getting stuff on Amazon wasn't tempting enough, they've made it even more alluring, at least in Great Britain, where Amazon UK has now introduced a buy now, pay later feature. So larger ticket items, $600 or more. Shoppers now have the option of clicking a Amazon pay monthly button where they don't have to put anything down and they've got up to four years to pay for it. 
Now, I'm all for ease and convenience, right? I mean, I really am. But boy, it's just not long, isn't it, right? You click a button, drone comes to your house, hour later, you know, you're still in your pajamas, right? This is the Jetsons, people. We're here, right? (laughs) Flying cars are just around the corner, I swear. Get now, pay later, pay whenever, right? You know, it is amazing to see, though, that while the experience of shopping has changed over the years, what hasn't changed are the consequences of shopping, specifically the consequences of buy now and pay later. And one of the most recent and comprehensive surveys done on consumer debt in America, actually just happened last November, results show that average U.S. household with debt carries over $15,000 in credit card debt and nearly $130,000 in total debt. That is the average for everyone who has debt, which means that the average household with debt pays $6,658 in interest each year or 9% of their total household income spent on interest alone. And within that 6658 of annual interest, it's estimated that just the interest on credit card debt alone that consumers pay, interest alone, credit card debt, is $2,630. That is a lot of money. Now, a lot of times with a message like this, the speaker then kind of makes a turn and rails on the evils of debt and unnecessary spending. And now I do think there is something in the numbers there that we need to pay attention to. There was something else in the survey I found that is interesting, that since 2003, the last 12 years, total cost of living has gone up 29%, cost of living 29%, while the average income has only gone up 26%. Expenses, 29% increase, you know, some even higher, healthcare, education, things like that, personal income, 26%, which means everything else being equal, there is this 3% squeeze we've all been feeling, Right? And, and if you're feeling that and your, your ship's not right, it's very alluring, very easy to fall into debt. As a result, household debt has grown 15% faster than household income since 2003, adjusting for inflation. Now, I share all that not to dump a bunch of numbers on you, but to acknowledge this reality that dealing with debt is a challenge, a real challenge that a lot of people have to face, a lot of you are probably facing. And it's not easy to own up to. You know, one of the other interesting findings from this survey is that the actual amount of credit card debt that people owe is on average one and a half times what they say they owe, right? The actual amount that they owe to companies is one and a half times what they say they owe. And, you know, what's so, so, you know, we would say then, you know, consumer, you ask them, how much credit card debt do you owe? And they'd say, well, we owe $10,000, but in reality, that number's 15000 That's what that survey's saying. Now, researchers conclude that, well, why is the difference? And they think it's a combination of knowledge and emotion, right? Knowledge that people don't always have a handle on how much they owe, but then emotion, that there's this stigma, right? There's a shame, there is a depression of admitting how much you're in debt. And so people, as a coping mechanism, want to downplay that number. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case for some of you here today. Debt is a real challenge. It is a hard one to own up to. But you need to know that if you feel suffocated by debt, you're not alone. You feel embarrassed about how much debt you have. I think this survey tells you that you are not alone. And I think if you feel helpless that your situation in debt is never going to change. You're not alone. 
And I say all that because if we're going to have an honest and hopeful conversation about debt today, then we need to face that reality and begin to take responsibility for choices that we're going to make from here on out. And so after talking about spending money in week one and saving money last week, today we're going to see what the Bible has to say about borrowing money. We're going to do that in light of the same foundational money principles from Scripture that we saw those first couple weeks. And we're going to do that along with this whole concept. We've been using this every week, the interaction between our money attitudes and money actions, right? That how we think and feel about our money directs how we act with our money, but then in turn our money actions shape and reinforce our money attitudes, this continuous loop of momentum that can work for us or against us. And that includes this whole area of borrowing. Whether we're going to dig ourselves deeper into debt or we're able to turn the tide and begin to experience some freedom and victory. So that's where we're headed today. And to begin, I want us to see what the Bible has to say about borrowing money. You know, when it comes to debt, borrowing money in Scripture is generally considered a foolish practice. Borrowing money in Scripture is generally considered a foolish practice. It's not evil. It's never called evil, but it's also not usually wise. There's a Bible verse most often cited when it comes to borrowing, Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. And you look at that, verse doesn't prohibit borrowing, but it does spell out the consequences, that when we borrow money, we put ourselves into a position of obligation and disadvantage. We sign away a certain amount of freedom and independence when we take on debt. Now, in a lot of cases, it's a small and manageable amount of freedom that we don't really feel in our normal day-to-day living. But there are those times, right? When the debts grow bigger, the payments lag longer, when we can begin to feel that bondage. Overdue payment notices, harassing calls from creditors, wage garnishment, vehicle repossession, and then even eviction and foreclosure, where that little bit of freedom we initially signed away starts to grow, gets out of control, it multiplies exponentially to the point where it takes over our lives. So you might look at this verse and think, wow, that word slave, that is far too dramatic, and in many cases it is, but the potential is there. The potential is there for this genuine kind of bondage in life that affects us not just financially, but emotionally and mentally and relationally and spiritually. It really exists when we put ourselves further and further into debt. The ritual over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. A general observation in life about how things work with us in this world. Now to get a better understanding, though, on this whole enslaving dynamic when it comes to debt, I thought it would be good to make a contrast. The contrast between borrowing money and then what we talked about last week, saving money. Now, in some ways, they're similar. Why? Because both saving and borrowing involve an element of sacrifice and discomfort. They do. But see, here's the crucial difference between saving money and borrowing money. Saving money is sacrificing short-term pleasure in the present for longer-term freedom in the future. Borrowing money, on the other hand, is experiencing short-term pleasure in the present but sacrificing longer-term freedom in the future. Pleasure and freedom. Both involve sacrifice. Both involve forfeiting one thing to gain another. But here's the difference between the two, that while saving money is a sacrifice that you make happen, borrowing money and then the consequences that come along with that, those are sacrifices that happen to you. So yes, saving money in the here and now is hard, but borrowing, the accumulation of interest, all that often adds up to ongoing, longer-lasting difficulties that are much harder to turn around. 
That's the difference. That is the trade-off. Maybe you already knew this. Maybe you didn't. But it's a dynamic that I think we need to all understand. This choice between the present and the future is something that we're faced with all the time. And that's even beyond just our money decisions and whether we save or borrow money. So just like we've done the last couple weeks, to dig deeper into this, I want to start with attitude. I want to start with our attitudes first when it comes to borrowing money. What motivates borrowing? We'll talk about the attitudes, and then we'll get to the borrowing actions. You know, when we think about borrowing, when we think about our hearts, when we think about the temptations that surround all that, few words come to mind, no particular order. The word need, greed, envy, jealousy, impatience, self-control, trust, contentment, eternal perspective. Now, later on, we're going to talk about the different kinds of debt, the things we borrow money for, like homes and cars and trips and goods and clothing and education and experiences, because I do believe that not all debt is created equal. There are different degrees of wisdom and foolishness depending on what we're borrowing money for. But before we get to that, I, I, thought, I think we need to talk about you know, our hearts and what's going on with our hearts and why taking on debt for something in the here and now is so tempting. You know, when you look in the Bible, the Scripture is filled with stories, both good ones and bad ones, of times when God's people are faced with decisions, faced with temptations where they've got to make a choice between the present and the future. So you've got Esau, the book of Genesis, who impatiently trades his valuable birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. Why? Because he was hungry in that moment, and he gave no thought to the longer-term consequences of what he had just thrown away. You got King Saul, who is about ready to go into battle, but he can no longer wait for his spiritual mentor Samuel, so he disobediently takes on the priestly duties that aren't his, and he winds up forfeiting his kingdom in the long run. And then you've got Judas in the New Testament who wasn't willing to wait around to see the kingdom that Jesus would eventually bring. So instead, he sold his loyalty for an immediate payout of some pieces of silver, a decision he would later regret that led him to take his own life. Every one of them giving away their future for something in the present. And I realize that none of these involve credit cards, right? But the underlining dynamic of how and why people get into so much trouble with debt is essentially the same. They're too impatient. They can't wait. They got to have it now. They lack self-control. They're willing to give up something much more valuable in that moment because they can't stand the discomfort of an unmet need. And so our consumer culture tells us, advertising persuades us, we convince ourselves that the missing piece in our life is some material thing, some immediate experience. That the reason I'm so unhappy is that I'm driving this piece of junk. Or that the reason my life is so miserable is that I don't live in a house as new and nice and as big as the one the Johnsons live in. Or the reason my esteem is so low is that someone my age should be enjoying the finer things in life than just eating ramen noodle and watching a tube TV, right? We convince ourselves these are the answers, the assaults of these kind of temptations in a consumer culture. They're endless, the barrage of messages trying to tell you what you really need in life. And these messages can be very convincing, so much so that we're willing to give up our future just to make the gnawing ache, the deep within hunger go away. The problem, though, as we've talked about throughout this series, is that created things can never fill the hole in our soul that's meant for our Creator. 
Let me say that again. Created things are never, were never meant to fill the hole in our soul that's meant for our creator. See, you can tear up your credit cards. You can cancel your accounts. You can consolidate your debts. You can take on this aggressive repayment program. But until the belief that life alone is found in God, until that belief is stronger in you than the pull of these temptations, you're going to continue to be susceptible to the bondage of debt. That's why I love the story of Jesus in the wilderness and his battle with temptation because this whole wrestling between the present and the future is at stake. You really get this sense that the struggle for Jesus is real. Yet unlike Esau, unlike King Saul, unlike Judas, Jesus keeps his head and he guards his heart. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, show us that Satan tempted Jesus on three different occasions. The first one has to do with hunger, just like with Esau. The second one has to do with safety, just like with King Saul. And the third one has to do with worldly wealth and prestige, just like Judas. And so we read about that third and final temptation in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, Satan said, if you bow down and worship me right now. Look at all this, Jesus. Go ahead. Make the trade. You know you want to, right? that's, That's the fork in the road that Jesus was facing. 40 days fasting in the wilderness. Third and final temptation. He's resisted the first two. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All temptations ultimately come down to a matter of worship, a matter of what or whom we will enthrone at the center of our hearts. Will we worship the Lord our God and serve him only? Will we honor him with the choices we make even when it is hard in the moment? Or will we trade our loyalty to some small, G counterfeit God that we tell ourselves is worth it for what we think we'll get in the here and now, right? Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that every borrowing decision, every debt difficulty is the result of us giving into a present versus future temptation like this, okay? But what I am saying is this, that for every Christian between now and heaven, you are going to have those times where you struggle with restlessness and discontentment, with impatience, with wanting more, with comparing yourself with others, with thinking that you deserve a better life, right? That is part of walking as a Christian in this world. One way or another, we're going to face it. So the question is, can I, can we keep on worshiping the Lord our God and serving him only, doing that first and always? Can we keep an eye on the riches of the future while resisting the temptations of the present? You know, and why say future? And that's just talking years down the road so that you can have a better retirement. I'm talking even bigger than that. I'm talking about eternity. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about the afterlife. Remember that series? That to live as a Christian in the here and now means you embrace the reality that while life in this world is hard, remaining faithful to God is always worth it in the long run because the best is yet to come. As wonderful and great as this life can be, and God gives us these incredible moments, the best is yet to come. Think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4. I, I'm, I was feeling presidential in that moment. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is what it means to have an eternal perspective, that we view our present difficulties in this life. We do it not in the here and now, in that limited scope. No, we view it against the backdrop of eternity and all that awaits us in Christ. And so because of that comparison, because of that trade-off, here's what we do, verse 18. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's how we're supposed to live. And as Christians, we need constant reminders in this world that, you know, where we live, there's a lot of brokenness. And this world is not our final home. It's not, no, and there is nothing in this world that you can see, smell, hear, taste, or touch that is going to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. So don't sacrifice the eternal for the temporary, which means when it comes to something like that, don't max out your credit cards without giving any thought to your future, both in this life and in the life to come. Like I've said throughout this series, the attitude of our heart, how we think and feel about money, whether it comes to our spending or our saving or our borrowing, is so important. It is so important because if you don't address the attitudes, and not just about money, but also about God, then even the best of the best of us when it comes to our personal financial planning, it's never going to succeed in the long run. And so we start with our borrowing attitudes, but then we also have to talk about our borrowing actions. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at a specific practical step I want us to all take when it comes to debt, you know, the weekly homework assignment like I've been giving you these last couple weeks. But before we do that, I want to share something that probably falls, I think, somewhere between uh, an attitude and an action. It's more like a, a principle when it comes to borrowing money. So here it is, really straightforward. Are you ready? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. That when it comes to borrowing money, I can't tell you how many people get themselves into trouble because they fail to follow this one simple truth. Just because you can borrow more money doesn't mean you should borrow more money. In other words, don't take on more debt just because someone's willing to lend you the money. Don't do it. I mean, we live, right, in this unprecedented era of quick and convenient access to credit. We do that if you compare our generation with the rest of human history, it has never been easier to borrow money. Now, I suppose if you want to get really nitpicky, it's probably a little harder now in 2016 compared to the mid-2000s before the credit bubble burst from the housing crisis, right, in 2008. But bigger picture, this present generation wins hands down. And so because of that easy access to credit, the temptation is even greater. You know? You know it, right? I mean, the offers to open up some type of new credit account, they're always pouring in. Email, snail mail, Facebook, letter from a Nigerian prince. You know, I mean, it is just like everything. Easy credit, no monthly payments, zero interest for the first year, right? But just because you can borrow that money doesn't mean you should borrow that money. That is the principle. Again, the Bible doesn't prohibit borrowing money. It isn't considered evil. Although I would add this, that God does have some very harsh words for those of us who are ever on the lending side of that equation and take advantage 
of others, right? And so if you're in that kind of position, you need to read up because there are some very harsh warnings. But on the borrowing side, it's more just about wisdom, that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Actually, another way to think about it is this, that when it comes to debt, your decision should, shouldn't be based on an availability to borrow, but rather on an ability to repay. Not availability to borrow, but it's based on your ability to repay. So if you're in a financial position where you do have an idea where the money's going to come from to repay your debts, and we're not talking about speculation, we're not talking about fanciful wishing, but rather a regular salary or predictable income stream where it's going to fit as part of your overall budget, then borrowing could be a wise move, right? Now, what you borrow for also fits into that equation. Things like housing and education usually make more sense than depreciable consumer goods or immediate one-time experiences. But even that gets into personal tastes and preferences, right? But the bigger idea, though, I think it's safe to say, it goes back to this concept. It's not availability. It's ability. Ability to repay. Like I said earlier, I wanted to save some time toward the end to get to some practical steps in this whole area of borrowing money. Now, as a quick review in week one, here were, you know, this was our previous homework, that when it came to spending, my challenge to you was to track your spending. Track your spending, all of it. Know where your money is going so that you can have more control over your spending rather than your spending having control over you. Track your spending. That's the homework from week one. Then last week, when we looked at saving, the assignment was to begin to save money for an emergency fund. Save money for an emergency fund that instead of spending everything you get in the present, set a portion of that aside for unforeseen expenses in the future. Now, the ideal goal, financial planners say, is three to six months of our income, but a more realistic goal, I think, for us to shoot for would be $1,000 in an emergency fund, right? $1,000 that even if it takes us a while to get there, you know, setting aside $10, $20 a paycheck, the fact that we're headed in that direction would be a huge win for all of us, saving money for an emergency fund. Now, this week, when it comes to borrowing money, I have to admit I was a little stumped because we've got all sorts of situations in this room when it comes to credit. On the one hand, we've got some of you here who are buried in debt, got thousands on your credit cards, mountains of student loans, you're upside down on your mortgage. A lot of you are living with that. And then on the other end of things, this might be hard for some, hard for some of you to grasp, but I bet we've got some people here who are debt-free, completely debt-free. And I'm not just talking nothing on their credit cards, but they also don't have any car payments. And even beyond that, they own their own home free and clear. It's true. It's possible. And you know what? It's not just because they're rich. No, it's because their faith in Christ has shaped their borrowing attitudes and actions. And they have discovered, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, that the secret of being content is found in Christ. It's not It's not about how much or how little you have, but rather in Christ, in any and all circumstances, contentment is possible. And so we got people here with a lot of debt. We got some of you who have little to no debt, and the rest of us probably fall somewhere in between. So given all that, what's our homework then? Well, here it is. Don't go deeper into foolish debt, right? Pretty underwhelming, I know. It's the best I got, right? Whether you are debt burdened, debt-free, or somewhere in between, starting today, don't go deeper into foolish debt. Don't charge anything you can't pay for. Break the habit of thoughtless and impulsive debt. So this isn't so much about starting something as it is about stopping something. 
breaking the habit, choosing wisdom over foolishness, freedom over pleasure. It's about getting that negative momentum of the attitude and action cycle in your life to start to slow down so that you eventually can get it going in the other direction. Don't go deeper into foolish debt. Now you'll notice I added the word foolish there again because like I said before, not all debt is created equal. You know, we might have someone here who is in the process of buying a house. You've saved the money. You've crunched the numbers. You've sought some advice. You've prayed to God, and you feel like it's something you're supposed to do. In that case, it's not foolish or wrong or evil to take on more debt. So the homework I'm giving you is not about every kind of debt and not doing it in any and every situation. No, it's about foolish debt, thoughtless, impulsive debt, the I-need-it-now kind of debt. There are a lot of us here who need to break that addiction and instead pursue more of the true commitment that is found in Jesus Christ. So don't go deeper into foolish debt. That is my homework for us this week. Next week, we'll wrap up by looking at giving money and what it means to live a generous life. But as I close today, um, I want to say a special word to those of you who want to do more than just the homework I've been giving you. You're tired of failing. You're tired of being in debt. You're tired of waking up in the middle of the night just because you're so stressed out about your finances. You're just plain tired. If you want to do more, you're ready to do more, I would encourage you to go to one of our Financial Peace University classes that we're starting tonight. Told you about them, two opportunities, two locations, one right here in the venue on North Campus and another one in Bay City at the Doubletree Inn, right? Now, I've told you, we've talked about the details of the class the last couple weeks. You can find out more at the adult desk in the lobby. You can go online, you know, and, and look at class registration there. But instead of give, me giving you more detail, I just want to finish by reading a few stories. Stories from people just like you, people who go to Hopewell, people who have gone through the class, who will tell you what a difference it's made in their life. Here's one. I started at Financial Peace University last January, and over the course of 2015, I've paid off $25,052 in debt. Before the class, my consumer debt consisted of 10 loans-slash-credit cards. The stress, the sleepless nights of wondering when those things are due, how much I could pay back, if they'll waive the late fee, or even worse, calling my mom to bail me out of bouncing checks, they are all gone. I'm now down to two loans, not including student loans or mortgage. Every credit card, though, is closed and not just and paid off, and I will never go back into their traps. I also work with a budget every two weeks. This keeps me on track. While I'm still in the middle of my journey, I cannot encourage enough people to go to this class who want to change their money habits because in addition to all the financial knowledge I've acquired, I've also learned to be content with what I have, to put off buying new things unless budgeted and planned for, until I can get my debt cleared, until I can refuse to, and not give you know, a cre- another credit card company another dime of my money. That's one story. Here's another. Our debt-free journey began in our premarital counseling class when we realized that we were both very worried about our financial future. We had a right to be. Our combined debt, which consisted only of our student loans, was $94,000. For a young couple just about to start a new journey together who didn't yet have full-time jobs, that number was extremely daunting. 
The monthly payment of our student loans would have rivaled the average mortgage payment of eight to $900 a month that we would have had to pay that amount over the next 15 years. We decided to be intentional in paying that debt off as fast as we could so we wouldn't have to carry around that burden. So together as a team, which is a critical factor of success, we followed the steps we learned in financial peace and started to pursue a goal of becoming debt-free. We followed a monthly budget that we worked on together, When we started working the plan, only one of us was fully employed. Shortly after we started, we both had full-time jobs, but we still lived on one person's income. All the extra income we were throwing at our debt to get it out of our lives as quickly as we could. After 22 months, we achieved our goal, and we have been debt-free ever since. I know, (laughs) yeah. Isn't that great? As a single gal, here's another. I often find myself saying, I deserve that. Even though I'd always tried to stay on a budget and live within my means, I never really narrowed that down until Financial Peace University. The class taught me to look where I spend money and to create more line items in my budget for saving. I love this. I now even have a line in my budget for kitty litter. There you go, right? The only debt I have now is my car and my house, which I have been diligently been paying extra on to get paid off early. I'm really excited about doing that. One more. Financial Peace University literally changed our lives. We would crash into the end of every year several thousand dollars in debt. We'd use our tax return to bail ourselves out as best as we could and then repeat the process all over again. Does that sound familiar? While I wasn't initially too keen on spending the $90 for the class to learn how to budget and save money, I knew it was something we had to do. And so with the class's help, we have pulled ourselves out of debt and stayed out. We don't follow every rule without exception, but we've stayed on a plan that works. Last year, we were able to go to Disney World. We uh, purchased major appliances, paid off all our Christmas expenses, and even had a vacation for our anniversary without a dollar of debt. We finally have a budget that works. We finally have an emergency fund. If we can do it, you can do it too, you know? And these are just a few of the stories that have come out of the class these last several years. And, you know, as I thought about that, you know, these are great stories. Great stories that involve a lot of hard work, a lot of tough choices, a lot of sweet victories. But, you know, even more than getting rid of all your debt, even more than that, this is an invitation to be free, to be freer to worship and serve Jesus with your life. Less distractions, nothing holding you back, but to experience the life that God has for you in knowing and following Jesus. You know, whether it's borrowing money, saving money, or spending money, that's what this is all about. Let's pray together. God, thank you that hope and life and freedom are ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And that, God, you give us not only the grace and the ability to pursue your plan for our lives, but you give us the wisdom and a roadmap to follow that. Lord, if the numbers are true, and I'm sure they are, we've got the full spectrum in this room, so the next step, the course of action for everyone here is different, right? So this is where we pray, I pray, that the still small voice of your spirit would take over, speak wisdom into our hearts, and give us motivation to act. Because God ultimately... We don't want money to rule over us. We want to rule over it because you and you alone are our Lord. 
And so we worship you with our lives, every single area of our life, every nook and cranny, we give to you, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.
Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, Lord over all, Lord over everything, this church, our lives, your life. Next week, we'll wrap up the money series with a look at giving and what it means to lead a generous life. But as you go from here, may you may be strong, made strong in the love of your Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you.